0: Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 85, Fallout Role-Playing Game. This week we take a deep dive into a relatively new game to the market, and we're doing this for two reasons. The first is that it's directly tied to one of the most popular video game series in the world, which means that the opportunities to bring new role players to the game are plentiful. The second is that this is the game I've been building a campaign for over the past eight weeks on Bad GM's campaign build-along, so I wanted to do something I haven't done yet and tie the two shows together in real time. I mean, I covered Deadlands way before I actually started the campaign build-along, so that doesn't count as real-time, just... Trying to be clear here. I promise you we'll spend a good amount of time talking about the role-playing game itself, but the first part of the tour will be background on the video game, since I always like to cover the materials a game is based on. Or at least I do that when the two are tied this close together. So let's crank up the tour bus and get to today's topic. The Fallout video game series are based on the concept of a post-apocalyptic United States, the specifics of the setting change from game to game, but the idea is the same throughout the series. On October 23, 2077, nuclear bombs were dropped on the United States, turning the entire country into basically a wasteland. There were survivors, thanks both to a series of vaults throughout the country that some of the population were allowed to move into in order to survive, and the ability of some humans to just manage to survive the blasts. The radiation also created ghouls, who are humans who were mutated thanks to the radiation. Several other types of human-like creatures are a part of the games, along with robots. But since this portion of the show is merely a background and history of the video games, we won't dive much deeper into them. We'll save that for the role-playing game. Interplay Entertainment was the studio responsible for creating the original Fallout game, and their studio, Black Isle Studios, handled the release of Fallout 2. Bethesda Games obtained the rights beginning with Fallout 3 and the follow-up Fallout 4 is the game the role-playing game is based on. Between the various titles in the main line, a variety of spin-offs have been developed, with the most recent being the online multiplayer game Fallout 76, which has been derided by a number of critics and players. Over the years, the various games in the video line have sold millions of copies, bringing tons of cash to both of the studios involved with the creation of the various titles, though Interplay and Bethesda have also locked horns in a number of lawsuits over the years. Again, since this isn't a video game podcast, we're going to leave that for somebody else's show. What we need to do at this point is dive into the Fallout role-playing game, since that's the stuff we cover on this show. To do that, we need to do a brief history of Modiphius Entertainment, the company behind the game. Modiphius Entertainment is a London-based company founded in 2012. They released several games over the past decade that have sold quite well, and they've developed their own die system that they've utilized for all of their games. Modiphius Games utilize a 2D20 system with a difficulty number, and we'll break that down a bit more when we get into the mechanics of Fallout. The system was originally used in their 2015 release, Mutant Chronicles. However, most gamers would be familiar with it from their Star Trek Adventures role-playing game that released in 2017. We covered that game in our episode covering games based on Star Wars and Star Trek. The basic timeline of Modiphius' involvement with Fallout goes like this. They acquired the Fallout licenses in 2017. In 2018, they released a tabletop warfare game based on Fallout. It's called Fallout Wasteland Warfare. And in 2019, they released an expansion for that game. At the time, they announced they'd be releasing a role-playing game based on Fallout in 2020, but the COVID pandemic shut down the final round of playtests and therefore shifted the release date. The PDF of the rules was released on their website in March of 2021, and the physical copy released in July of that same year. For the record, the Modifius license for Fallout is specific to the Fallout 4 video game, so as we get into detailing the game itself, that's why you won't hear me describing settings that apply to any of the other games. I was unable to dig up information detailing why that was the case with the license, but that is the case, so we're just going to run with it. Credit for the design of the game goes to Nathan Dowdell and Sam Webb, with additional design credit given to Virginia Page. The physical book clocks in at a hefty 431 pages, and that includes a short adventure and character sheet in the back of the book. The physical copy is, as of this point, only available in hardcover, but it's also still available in PDF form from the Modiphius website. And as both an FYI and a sign of things to come as we discuss the game itself, the book lists the Modiphius website as ModiPHIUS.com. However, when you get to the website, the URL is listed as M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S Look, maybe I'm being nitpicky, but I just thought I'd point that out here. The setting for the Fallout role-playing game is, as I mentioned a moment ago, the exact same setting that's used for the Fallout 4 video game which puts the action in what's called the Commonwealth. Basically, it's the area surrounding Boston, and it includes Lexington, Salem, and Concord, among other municipalities. The setting section of the book lays out the various locations fleshed out by the designers and based on the locations utilized in the video game. Having played the video game, I can tell you that for the most part, the book utilizes the locations from the video game almost exclusively and doesn't create too many new locations of their own. We will expand more on this thought in a few minutes. Something the creators did add to the location descriptions in the book are quest ideas that the GM can utilize when building their campaign, provided of course they utilize the Commonwealth as their campaign location. I say that because for the campaign we're building over on the campaign build along, we don't use the Commonwealth, but I'll expand on that shortly. I will say this about the level of detail in the setting section. The creators did everything they could to provide a GM with all of the possible setting materials that they could for a campaign. They even break down their layout with generic possibilities like diners, bunkers, caves, and, and other locations that GMs might want to use to add their own flavor to a campaign. All of that being said, we need to get into the guts of the game itself since I promised I'd expand on the 2D20 system. Now, to do that, I'll have to detail things a bit out of the order I'd usually use, but it's gonna make sense, I promise. I need to begin this rundown by explaining that attributes in the Fallout game are described with the acronym SPECIAL. Strength, Perception, Endurance, Charisma, Intelligence, Agility, and Luck. Those are the attributes, so you see where the acronym comes from. I'll explain how these scores are generated in a minute. There are also 17 skills for characters in the game, and each of them are associated with an attribute, though not in the way you're used to in games like D&D. Again, I'll break it down more in a minute. I just wanted to get those two points out so I can better explain how the 2D20 system works. And it works like this. When it comes time to attempt a task, the GM will give an attribute and skill that need to be added together to form the target number. The GM will also give a difficulty number to the player. The difficulty number ranges from zero to five and represents how hard the specific task would be, with zero being an automatic success and five being damn near impossible. So the player rolls their 2d20. Any roll at or below the target number is considered a success, and if a one is rolled, it's considered to be two successes. So long as the number of successes is equal to or greater than the difficulty, the task is a success. There's more that can happen as well, but again, we'll get to all of that in a minute. Combat roles work pretty much the same as task roles, though there are five skills that specifically play towards attack types, big guns, energy weapons, melee weapons, small guns, and unarmed. When it comes time to attack, the player will use the skill tied to the weapon type they're using, which is in turn tied to an attribute. Again, the target number is the result of adding the two together, and the GM will, again, give a difficulty. The only change between tasks and combat is that there's also a location die for when attacks hit, which allows the player and GM to be aware of what body parts take the damage. That's the basics of the 2D20 system, and I think it's enough for our purposes for today. Let's get into the various points I hit on in my description so we get a better idea of how some of these things work. When it comes to the special attributes, the only one that's different from attributes we're familiar with is luck. Luck isn't tied to any skills, and it's something that will very rarely actually be rolled. So why does it exist? First off, special is also how the attributes are referred to in the video games, and while luck has a different purpose there, it does have uses in the role-playing game. First, your luck score determines how many luck points your character has, and luck points can be used in a variety of ways. They can be spent to have the GM impart a helpful detail to the player that they might not otherwise get. They can be spent to allow the character to substitute their luck score for the attribute called for in the roll they're getting ready to make, which, quite frankly, only makes sense if the luck score is higher than the attribute. They can also be used to interrupt the initiative order so the character can act. And they can also be used to reroll 1d20 or 3 damage dice, so luck is more useful than it might have appeared on the surface. When creating a character, each attribute starts with five ranks in it, and the player has five ranks to use to raise the scores. They can also lower any attribute they want to a 4, then use those extra points to raise other attributes. That allows the player to customize their character the way they want pretty much for the vision they have. Attributes also play into other parts of the character, as agility plays a part in the character's defense, while initiative is determined by adding the perception and agility scores together, and yes, initiative is a fixed score. Your character will always act on that number, so be aware when you're building. Health points are determined by the endurance plus luck, and melee damage is based on strength, as you might expect. So it's imperative when building the character to take all of these factors into account. The skills are, well, they're skills. They're created as they needed to be for this game, but they work pretty much the same way as they do in any other game that uses skills, which I explained a moment ago. When building the character, you have a number of skill points equal to the intelligence score plus nine. One difference in the Fallout game is that the character gets to designate three skills to be tag skills. Again, these are skills that tie into the character's background or concept, and they're the ones that will probably be used the most for that character. They get two points automatically in tag skills, but are still limited to three points in them at character creation. For the record, three is the most points that can go into any skill at creation. Tag skills also have the benefit of upping the critical success probability, because if you're making a roll that involves a tag skill, any roll at or below the number of points in the skill is considered a critical success, so it's two successes. Something else that carried over from the video game to the role-playing game are perks. Think of these kind of like you would feats in D&D. They're advantages the character has in certain things, and with the total number of available perks, there's enough for each character to be unique, even if they're the same basic type of character. They do a variety of different things, and just trying to describe that would take way more time than I've got for like a week. Rather than classes, Fallout uses Origins. The origins are Brotherhood Initiate, which would make them part of the Brotherhood of Steel. And if you've played the video game, you know who these guys are. If you haven't, just type in Brotherhood of Steel in your search engine online or on YouTube. You'll find out. Ghouls, who have been basically mutated by radiation. Supermutants, who've been mutated through experiments in the vaults. I'll get to that in a minute. Robots, specifically versions of the Mr. Handy survivors, who are folks who've learned how to survive out in the wasteland, and vault dwellers, who've probably just come out of one of the vaults. Each origin comes with its own set of perks at character creation, so check those out if you go to play the game. Since I basically laid out combat a few minutes ago, I'm I'm not going to repeat it here. Suffice to say, when combat begins, you get the initiative scores for all your players and all of your NPCs and or monsters and you put them in order. Then you run combat like you'd run it in any other game. When it comes to bad guys for the group to run into, there are a variety of monsters and men that they can interact with, and sometimes the men are the monsters, especially the ones from Vault-Tec, which is the company that created the vaults. In the game history, Vault-Tec vaults were specifically designed to run experiments on their inhabitants, usually without their permission. So folks who thought they were safe in the vaults were actually being experimented on, and that was usually to their own detriment. Look, I could keep going on and on and on about the game itself, especially since I've been knee-deep into it for the past couple of months. But if I told you everything, you wouldn't need to buy it, now, would you? In addition to the main game book, Modifius has also released a starter kit and a Game Master's kit. They're both available in your local game shop or from the Modifius website. I own them both, and while I found the starter kit to be exceptionally valuable for those looking to play without shelling out for the whole book... The GM's kit, other than the caps you can punch out to give your players, didn't have a whole lot I needed. Oh, yeah, I almost forgot about the caps. In the Fallout world, there is no money. Nuka-Cola bottle caps are the primary form of currency, and players will need to either find them or trade for them if they want any to spend. A lot more on that in the rulebook. Before I change gears and bring stuff from the campaign build-along into this show, I wanted to drop in a couple of reviews. Charlie Hall wrote his on April 9th, 2021 for Vox Online. In his review, he stated that, quote, life in the wasteland is fun again, end quote. In his review, he praised both the simplicity and complexity of the game, which would sound contradictory, but the complexity he was referring to are the rules for cover during combat and the system of zones used to determine difficulties when shooting. He liked those and appreciated that most of the rest of the rules were fairly simple. He didn't offer a rating, but his overall review was positive, so we can safely assume he liked the game. John Farrell, on the other hand, didn't seem quite as positive. In his review for Gaming Trend on September 13th, 2021, he referred to the game as, quote, buggy and incomplete despite showing immense promise, end quote. He did admit to being, quote, impressed by the game's accuracy and depth, end quote, but added, quote, there is no mistaking a few wrinkles in the production quality, end quote. He specifically called out references in the game book to a GM's guide that hadn't been released as of the publishing of the book. I'm not sure if the GM's toolkit is the book they're referencing or not, so I'm going to need to dig a little deeper. He also notes the various errors on page references and typos in the text. His closing statement pretty much sums up his thoughts on the game. Do I recommend this? Sure, but only to those who are willing to invest the time, effort, and money for a product with a high barrier to entry. End quote. They gave the game a score of 60 on a 100 point scale. Okay, so this is where we start to veer off into campaign build along territory, as I wanted to put my own two cents on the product. I fully acknowledge that the game has its flaws, not the least of which is the cost, but I've found it fairly easy to locate the information I've needed to make calls in the game, for the most part, and the various charts are laid out in an easy to use style. In my opinion, there's way too much equipment and gear available, but I think it exists in an attempt to keep the role playing game as close to the video game as humanly possible. My group seems to be picking up on the rules fairly quickly, and most importantly, characters can be created in a half an hour or less. I say a half an hour as the top because I've got a couple of players who take forever to create characters anyway, while I had a couple that hammered theirs out in about 15 minutes. So, pretty easy to create some characters quickly and get into the game. I haven't started the campaign we're creating yet, so my thoughts might change. Let's talk about building a campaign. I'm sure you're asking why I talk about that here when I've got an entire other podcast devoted to it. Part of this is my wanting to give some insight as to how the rules seem to work when you build outside of the printed setting. But I'll be honest and also admit that I'm not too proud to promote one podcast on the other. I mean, I got to get the downloads up one way or the other, right? As regular listeners to the campaign build along know, I'm setting my campaign in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. What that means to me, and what it would mean to anyone wanting to move their game out of the Boston area, is that a great deal of the provided setting material is irrelevant since it refers to specific landmarks and historical figures from that area. However, there are some locations that are provided that could be easily picked up and dropped into any area you choose. Plus, if you're using a large city anywhere in the world, that city is gonna have landmarks and history of its own, so you could take some of the setting ideas and incorporate them into the location you're using for your game. Or you could just be a sucker for punishment like I am and decide to create a whole lot of your own history for your game. Hey, either way, it's gonna be interesting. In so far as running the game, I've been running my group through the adventure module presented in the starter kit. I mentioned above that the group seems to be picking up on the rules pretty quickly, but I should add that we have had to hit up the old interwebs a few times to find help for some questions that we had that the book just didn't seem to address. So when John Farrell was pointing out flaws with the book, he wasn't entirely wrong, in my opinion. Now, after all of that, if you're curious about what a campaign build for Fallout looks like, Check out Bad GM's campaign build-along, which is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. There. Now I don't have to do that at the end of the show. (laughs) Overall, do I think Fallout is the best post-apocalyptic game I've ever seen? Not by a long shot. There's at least a half a dozen other games that I think are written better and use simpler systems. As one of my buddies and member of my game group, Jim said when the group first decided to play Fallout... It's not his first choice for this style of game, but what he would do instead is get into playing the character. And so far, he seems to be having a pretty good time with it. And yes, it is the younger players in my group that decided they wanted Fallout, which makes sense if you ask me. They are a part of the generation for whom Fallout was basically created for, and they've all pretty much played every game in the series. The credit for me actually buying the game is my daughter's boyfriend, who wanted to get into gaming but wasn't sure about D&D or other games. My daughter suggested I buy it, I did, and he really got excited to try gaming. And for me, that's the reason why I think this game should exist. It gives an opportunity to bring some of the next generation of gamers to the table with material that they're already familiar with. Sure, we're probably bowing down to the altar of the video game creator, but if we're telling the truth, we've been bowing down at the altar of science fiction and fantasy writers for decades in our role playing games. Video games are to an extent, the 21st century equivalent. I'm not trying to piss anybody off here, by the way. If it wasn't for my daughter strongly suggesting I buy the game, I probably wouldn't have. and We'd be playing Firefly right now. All I'm trying to say is if Fallout brings more role players to the table, that's a good thing. Once we get them here and we get them hooked, we can introduce them to more games in different genres and we've then ensured our hobby will live on after us. Or at least we can hope, right? And with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. Next week, I'm going to get into that list I always reference about the 50 most popular role playing games of all time from Arcane Magazine. I've always been curious about it, and I discovered some things I did not know when I was researching it. So it should be an interesting show. I mentioned the campaign Build Along a moment ago, so I'm not going to repeat that here. You're welcome. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod. On Twitter at badgmp, YouTube, and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com, and our website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we check out Arcane Magazine's list of the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time, well, as of 1996. <laughs> but that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your Role-Playing History.